Father God, we, I, I hope, Lord, that we have come here not seeking just to do good, not seeking to earn favor, but indeed, as we just sang, to actually find our rest, that we would find our rest in you, knowing, Lord, that there's, there's so many things of this world that just demand on us to do more, to try harder, to at least act like we're enough. And God, we just, we're just so tired. We're just so tired of that kind of life. And so, Lord, I pray that this morning as we go to your word, as we look at, at one incredible woman, that we would see what it is to come to you. And that we would see your kindness and your grace. Thank you for loving us, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. Unless you really want to be awkward and stand through this whole thing like me. Uh, it'd be strange. Uh, please don't. Um, have you ever found yourself just completely immersed in a story? Maybe it's uh, in a book or, or on film and you just, you go into this story and you're immersed in it and it becomes clear. The protagonist is going to die. You know the protagonist is going to die. You don't want them to die. You look up to the protagonist. You like the protagonist. The protagonist is just the best at everything. But you know he or she is going to die. It's inevitable. It's foreshadowed. It's around every corner. Two examples of this that come to mind for me are Braveheart and Gladiator. You just know it's not going to end well for Billy and Max. They're going to they're gonna meet their end, and it's not going to be good. You know there will be much suffering. You know there will be death. And you keep hoping that something else will happen, but you know that it just simply can't. Like there's only one way for this story to end. And indeed, if somehow it did go differently and they were carted off and saved and lived happily ever after, it would not only cheapen the story, but it would actually take the power out of the story. I think the Gospels read this way. And the Gospel of Mark, where we've been for quite some time now, is, is, is absolutely like this. There's a tension building. You can just feel it. The, the religious leaders and the teachers are growing more and more intolerant of Jesus. They're growing more and more frustrated. Jesus has told his own followers on three occasions, I'm going to die on a cross. We know that Jesus keeps his word, but we, even as we read, as, as, as mature believers, we're reading the Gospels, and sometimes we can find ourselves going, why, why does Jesus have to die this way? Why does my beloved Savior have to get beaten and tortured and nailed to a cross? Why does this have to happen? And we know the good that comes out of it, but we we want to find another way. They really have to happen. And so we read our Bibles. 
we search out the Gospels, almost like an investigative podcast, asking why did Jesus have to die? What led up to his dying? And if we were doing that like an investigative podcast, trying to search why Jesus had to die, we would absolutely have to read these verses out of Mark 14. So if you have your Bibles open, or your your app on, or whatever you do, follow along with me, starting in Mark 14, 1. It was now two days before the Passover, and the feast of the unleavened bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke it and poured it over his head. And there were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him, to betray them. And When they heard of it, they were glad, and they promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. So why did Jesus have to die? Why did he die? He died because of sinners. It's that simple. Jesus died because of sinners. And this story just just points us to this over and over. And and first we see this rejection, this cunning rejection. And it's a cunning rejection that comes from exactly where we would expect it to come from, from the, the, the scribes and the chief priests. And they have this plan, what they think is a great idea after the Passover when the crowds are going back to their homes, when they're leaving, when all these people who love Jesus, who think he's the next best thing, when they're on their way out of town, we're going to snag him up and we're going to kill him. We're going to do it quietly, by stealth. They were looking for a post-Passover private execution. They wanted to do this quietly. They didn't want anyone to be rallied by Jesus' death. They didn't want anyone to try and come to Jesus' rescue. Just to grab him quietly, kill him quietly, and be done with it. Here's the deal. 
religious leaders are not as sneaky as they think they are. In fact, their plans failed on epic proportion. When we read the Gospel of Mark, we see, well, they killed him during the Passover feast in about the most public way possible. It's important to note that with all their pride and all their evil and even all their power and influence as scribes and chief priests, they are subject to the sovereignty of God. God's plans always win the day. They always succeed. They are never out-schemed. They are never late. God's sovereignty, even in this moment, should give us great hope. It should educate our hearts as we suffer. That even in this moment, where there's this, these people, that these are the movers and shakers of Jerusalem. These are the movers and shakers of, of, of the temple, of, of the Jewish faith at the time. And they did not have enough power to kill one person the way they wanted to. Because God is sovereign over them. God is sovereign even over the wicked. And I want to do something a little different with the passage. Instead of going right to verse 3, we're going to go all the way over to verse 10. Because Jesus died because of sinners and their cunning rejection. And he also died because of sinners and their treasonous rejection. So we go to verse 10. Judas Iscariot. Look how Mark points this out. One of the twelve. Not just a guy. He's not just... He's not just someone who's following in the crowds. He's one of the 12. He is absolutely in line for apostleship. He went to the chief priests in order to betray them. This is absolute treachery. It's apostasy at its worst. Treason almost feels like too small of a word for this act of rejection from Judas. Think of all the things that Judas would have experienced up to this point. Think of all the things that would have, that would have happened just through Mark. The feeding of the four and five thousand. The, the casting out of the legion of demons. The walking on water. The calming of the storm. When we go to the other Gospels, Judas was there for the Sermon on the Mount. Judas was sent out with the twelve with authority to cast out demons and proclaim the kingdom of God. And it worked. Judas would have seen Lazarus come out of the tomb. These are things that we only dream of seeing. And Judas was there for all of them. So what happened? How do we go from a guy in a boat amazed that Jesus, with a word, could quiet the seas and the wind? How do we go from that to, I'm going to sell them out. 
Judas's worldliness won out. His worldliness won the battle of his worship. And this happens too often. Where desires of the world become bigger in the human mind and heart than the creator of the world. Following Jesus was desirable for Judas until it became untenable. You can't worship the Lord and worldliness. Whether that worldliness take on the form of materialism, the power of yourself, your sexuality, your, con your control over other people or your own environment, and every other form of pride and selfishness, this, just the desire to be happy as you define it, not willing to subject that to the Lord. Judas, along with this greed and treason, is held in stark contrast with the woman that we're about to see, where she had no standing. Judas was one of the twelve. She lays down an expensive offering and Judas takes a bribe. She expresses complete devotion and Judas betrays. But I want you to see what Mark has done here. In answering for us this question, why did Jesus die? And in, in, in laying out that Jesus died for sinners, Mark gives us a betrayal sandwich. I don't recommend ordering it at McAllister's. It's not that good. But here we have the, the betrayal of those who should have known the word of God better than anyone else. And we have the betrayal of one of those who knew the deeds of Jesus better than anyone but 11 other people. And they betray Jesus. But what Mark does is he takes a story that happened actually a few days prior to this. We have this time marker. It was two days before the priests are seeking, Judas comes to them. But before that, we know this from the other Gospels, this was actually a few days before the priests had their plan of stealth. Jesus was at a dinner. And the events of this dinner show us that Jesus dying because of sinners has nothing to do with the plans of the chief priests, has nothing to do with Judas's treasonous rejection and betrayal. Because even those weren't too much for our Savior. But it was something else entirely, that Jesus dies because of sinners, because he has a self-giving, sacrificial, salvation-giving love. This is why sinners cause Jesus to die. And this dinner, if we backtrack to verse 3 here, is all about the fullness and magnitude of what the Lord can do. They're in Bethany, kind of their home base in this week in Jerusalem. And the host is quite particular. Simon the leper. 
There's a lot of irony here. How can a party be hosted by a leper? Because lepers, if they're doing their leprosy thing right, are outcasts from the town, living alone, and if they have to come into contact with people, they are yelling unclean to the best of their ability. And here we see someone known as a leper who's hosting a dinner. The gospel writers leave us to assume that the only way this could happen is because Simon benefited from the miraculous healing power of our Savior. Maybe he was the man in Mark 1 that said, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus said, I will, and touched him, and he was clean. Maybe that's him. Maybe it's someone else from Jesus' ministry. But Simon the leper, who we assume is healed by Jesus, is having a dinner. That in this dinner itself, and the setting it's in, testifies to the power of Jesus. As Simon sets for us a great example of having friends over to meet the one who changed your life. Jesus took Simon the leper, we presume, from hopeless loneliness to this moment here of a full house and a dinner. But obviously the host isn't the center of attention here in the text. It's this seemingly uninvited guest. As he was reclining at the table, a woman with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, which I would argue is historically the worst name for perfume that humanity has ever come up with. Just imagine it, Von Maurer. You have Chanel number no. five, and next to it, pure nard. It's just, it'll never sell. They, they have a marketing problem. But she comes here. John says it was a pound of nard. No small amount. She breaks the flask and she pours it out on Jesus. You know, as we look at the other gospel writers, it's interesting that this story is in all four gospels. So as we find Jesus' words at the end that that wherever the gospel is preached, this woman will be told about and this act of worship will be told about. It is in all four gospels. And from those gospels, we glean some facts. We learn that she's pretty unworthy. In one of the gospels, she's identified as a woman who would sell herself. And so you can maybe assume that this nard, that this, this bottle of expensive perfume was the fruit of her labor. And they say, Jesus, you wouldn't let her touch you if you knew what she did and who she is. And they want to identify her by the sins she's done or she's rumored to have done. Here she is in a leper's house being treated worse than the leper. But not by Jesus. He defends her and he honors her. He doesn't view her as some sort of mistake who has made greater mistakes. He sees her as a worshiper. 
He sees her as someone to forgive, someone to bring into the family of God. We also know from the other Gospels, this is John identifies her as Mary, Lazarus' sister. She's someone Jesus has gotten to know. He's not concerned with chastising her for her past, but honoring her present worship. And here in her worship is where Mark, the writer we're studying, makes his emphasis. He doesn't even bring up her past. He doesn't bring up her name. He brings up her offering and its value and the treatment she gets from the onlookers and from Jesus herself, himself. Mark puts the emphasis of this uninvited guest on her extravagance. She brings in a flask. Now this is not your sketchy uncle's flask that he hides in his lapel pocket. This is a much larger bottle meant to be displayed, meant to be shown as I have something really valuable in here. And truly she did. This perfume was desirable. It was hard to make. Its ingredients were hard to find. And as she pours it out, people are in shock. You can imagine the strong smell coming through the room, and they're not complaining about the smell. They're talking about the value. That's 10 months' worth of wages she just poured out. 10 months' worth of wages in this bottle poured on Jesus. That could have done so much more then fill this room and make his hair greasy and oily. This could have done so much more than that. But was her worship too much? Was it misallocated? When the theologian says that there is no waste of devotion when you give it all to Jesus. Isn't that lovely? There is no waste of devotion when you give it all to Jesus. Jesus was worthy of this sacrifice, worthy of this nard, and so much more. I've learned that people are typically pretty good at figuring out how to spend someone else's money. I think there's a whole bunch of us in here who if we had the bank account of, say, the NFL, we could solve world hunger pretty fast, right? We love the idea of spending someone else's money for charity or other things. This crowd... We know from the Gospel of John, particularly Judas, we're in the camp of, I could do a lot with someone else's money. Why was this ointment wasted like this? It could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. Jesus rushing to her defense, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing for me. You always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. 
It's important to know here, Jesus is not dismissive of the poor. He's not saying, you know what, forget them. Just make it rain nard up in here. Jesus knows a couple things. One, he knows that this objection is not out of actual, genuine concern for the poor. Jesus knew Judas was lining his pockets, that he was a corrupt treasurer for the disciples, that he wasn't concerned about the poor. And Jesus also knew that in the not-too-distant future, his, his church would be established and his church would do a whole lot more for the poor than one bottle of perfume. But Jesus is concerned with this worship. Look at the value that Jesus gives on her worship. Do you think, do you think that the Lord values your worship? I think he does. I think the Lord values your worship greatly. You know, it's interesting. In this room, you have the 12 disciples. You have some onlookers who are spectating Jesus' ministry, maybe for the first time, maybe for a long time. We know from the other Gospels there's some religious leaders in there. And this woman, who is known most for her sin by the community, is the one who gets it. She's the one who gets who Jesus is. She's the one who gets how worthy he is. One commentator calling this impractical worship. But also noting that Jesus is worthy of our impractical worship. Our worship will never really look all that practical to the outside world. I'm guessing that if your coworkers knew that a tenth or more of your income goes to the Lord just out of personal practice, that they would think you were crazy. That if they knew that we would gladly send our children and grandchildren to unreached parts of the world, to live in very difficult circumstances, out of worship to God, that they would think that impractical and foolish. Or that if we intentionally moved into a neighborhood that is less desirable because there needs to be the light of the gospel somewhere on that street. Or that if I would intentionally move to sobriety, leaving behind me these escapes of the world, if that I would offer my body to the Lord to live in a way that He finds pure, Denying what the world touts as pleasure, that that would be foolish worship. The world will wonder why we pour out something so precious for Jesus. But as they get to know us, I hope they see that we're not just pouring out precious things hoping for some return but that we are pouring out precious things over and over and over again with gladness and gratitude for what he has done. Jesus has spoken of his death multiple times up to this point in Mark, to the point that no one's even asking him about it anymore. 
And this woman, this wonderful, wonderful woman, whether she knows it or not, when she was pouring out the nard, Jesus says exactly what she did, that she is preparing his body for burial. She has anointed Jesus to lie in the tomb before the crowds have, sh have, have shouted, crucify. She, out of all in the room, was the one acting in accordance with the Savior's plan. The plan that Jesus had to die for her sins. This is such a beautiful picture. She comes in just, just a very honest response to the person of Jesus. Laying out this treasure, pouring it out. To anoint him for his burial because her sins need forgiven. And what Jesus is about to do is to make possible the forgiveness and removal of her sin. She paved the way for Jesus to forgive her sins. She, she prepared his body for this. And while others, as we've said, make a big deal of her sin, Jesus is not afraid of her unholiness. He doesn't jump back at it. He's not alarmed. He honors her faith. He accepts her worship. Because her sacrifice and the anointing that she poured out were a tremendous act of worship. And because Jesus' death is all about saving people exactly like her. Who know that their sin is detestable. People who would have no hope in the world, but through Christ can have eternal life. Jesus died so that she can enter the presence of God and stand forgiven. Jesus died so that you can stand before a holy God forgiven of your sin. Jesus did not die because sinners outmatched him, outwitted him, but he lovingly gave himself, laying his life down. And so we celebrate this woman. We celebrate Mary, who poured out all this to worship Jesus, to anoint him beforehand for burial. Because we knew, we know, and he knew that he was about to die. That death is unavoidable. And in that death, there is great power. Because that death was not the end, but he rose after being in that tomb. He gave himself for the glory of God. He gave himself for this woman, for sinners, for us. As the praise team comes, let's pray. Father, you are so good. You are so great. You are so loving. You are so kind. We praise you 
for the ministry of the cross. We praise you for this death and burial. We praise you for the gospel. And Lord, if there's any in here who have not yet realized the fullness of our sins being able to be forgiven, Lord, would we turn our hearts to you? Ask for that forgiveness that's so available. And ask for the new life. That we would live in the gratitude of the greatness of Jesus and what he's done for us. It's in his holy and precious name we pray. Amen.